Good evening, everyone. The second Bible reading is taken from Romans 16. It's a whole chapter. You can find it in the Pew Bibles on page 1192. Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Sekais. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Eretobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asenkritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as to Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erasmus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Stella. As I was sitting there watching young Lloyd get baptised, I thought, he's going to make a fine Baptist one day. 
I came here earlier and uh, I spoke to Owen and he said, oh, do you know that my boy's getting baptised tonight and all our family's going to be here? And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> so if you're wondering why my sermon has nothing to do with baptism, that is why. <laughs> but actually, it's a real privilege to, to, to be here because um, Owen and Anna had a role in me coming to faith about 10 years ago at uni. So it's quite amazing that now I'm standing here speaking at their son's um, baptism. So it's a real privilege. So why don't we pray now as we come before God's word? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to gather as your people week in, week out in this great city of Melbourne. Uh, Lord, we've all come here in, in different conditions. Some of us are, are really well and are ready to receive your word. Others are, are perhaps are depressed or uh, angry or, or whatever's going on in their lives. We just pray that you would calm all of our hearts, that you would tune our hearts in with yours so that we can be ready to hear your word, to be encouraged and challenged by it. And that would bring you much glory. Be with me now as I preach your word and preach only truth through that. We pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen. What, would you, what should we rather expect of a Christian heart? For those of us who are Christians, we, we hope we have such a heart. But how do we even know? One test is whether we know each other. Let me, let me share a story. I should have known better, but about one month ago, this happened. Uh, I was on the welcome team down the front there, welcoming some of you, and I was saying to Hannah Moody, you know, it took me ages to get Michelle Galuck's name right, and Wendy, who'd overheard this walk past and she's blurred out, it's Wendy! <laughs> Fail. <laughs> to make matters worse, just tonight, I, I spoke to young Esther and I went up to her and said, oh, Kayla, how's your week been? And she says, it's Esther. <laughs> so that experience, along with preparing this sermon, made me think, maybe it's time I get to know my church a little better. I need to actually put effort into getting people's names right. And I wonder if that's true for some of you as well. Unlike me, who confuses Wendy and Michelle, the author of tonight's passage not only remembers the names of all his spiritual family, but he also values the kingdom work that they do. Getting names right is one example of a Christian heart, but the Christian heart impacts uh, so many things, every aspect of our lives. And we see from this passage that it wasn't merely knowing the church family that made a heart a Christian one. We're going to see from God's word that a Christian heart is an FF, sorry, an FPG heart. That is, it's familial, it's protective, and it's gospel-focused. Consider the Apostle Paul. He was a gun leader. He was a, an amazing preacher. He was a, a brilliant church planter, an evangelist. If any church leader could get away with uh, working alone, it'd be him. He's a highly capable guy. But this highly capable guy didn't go it along. He wasn't some cowboy. This man had the humility to know that he needed co-workers, brothers and sisters who laboured side by side in the business of God. And so because they are his co-workers, he naturally uh, was familiar with them. Of course he knew their names, but it's more than that. Paul goes beyond just naming these people. He uses the language of family to describe how he relates to them. You see, they're his sisters, his brothers, his mothers, his beloved, his kinsmen. 
There's 26 names in our list, and many of these people he hasn't even met before. So the question we should be asking is why? Why does Paul remember these names so well? And the answer lies in how he saw them. You see, these people, they're not numbers to Paul. These people are family. He genuinely cared for them. As a father loves his children, so Paul loved his spiritual family. Let's just consider one of these relationships. In verse 1, the first person Paul commends is Phoebe. Phoebe, in Paul's eyes, is a sister. She's a deacon or servant, someone who takes care of the physical needs of the church, the church in Chencray. Chencray was a busy seaport. It, was, it would be a bit like modern-day Port Melbourne. All these ships are coming in and out, bringing tourists from all over the world. If you were a Christian with Phoebe's wealth and resources, it just made sense that uh, as believers came in from abroad, you would take them in and care for them. And that's exactly what she did. And Paul calls her one of his patrons. That means she provided Paul with resources and a residence. And this means it was likely she was a household leader too. She was a woman of financial independence. She had a socially prominent place and she was active in the Corinthian churches. Don't you think it's interesting that in a male-dominated world at that time that Paul chose to name Phoebe first, and even more than that, that he used, he used Phoebe to deliver this letter to the church in Rome. Another eight women are greeted in this text. Five of them are commended for their labour in the Lord. In a culture that didn't value equality with women, Paul unashamedly endorsed his sister of the faith to the Romans. Now, while this isn't the main point of the text, I think it's important. In a day when churches in our city of Melbourne sometimes pendulum too far in reaction to the third-wave feminism culture around us. The way Paul spoke of Phoebe reveals his fondness for her, but more than that, it reveals his respect for her as a fellow worker, a fellow gospel worker. He wanted Rome to know that she was a deacon. She had an important role to play in caring for the needs of other gospel workers in that city. You see, Paul saw gospel ministry as family business. And many of the family members he greets in this chapter get labelled as fellow workers or kinsmen. And this tells us that Paul not only valued the people of God, but he valued the family business of God that they did too. Come with me and take a bird's eye view of verses 1 to 16. Let's see it in the text. First, look at the way Paul describes his fellow workers. We see Sister Phoebe in verse 1. We see Prisca and Aquila, in, uh, his fellow workers, in verse 2. Epinatius, his Paul's beloved, in verse 5. Andronicus and Junius are Paul's kinsmen and fellow prisoners, in verse 7. Ampliatus is another beloved brother, in verse 8. We see yet another fellow worker, Urbanus, and another beloved, Stachys, in verse 9. Herodian is another kinsman in verse 11. Tryphena and Tryphosa are workers in verse 12. And Rufus' mother has been a mother to Paul in verse 13. And then you look down at verse 21. We see a few more names. There's Timothy, the fellow worker. There's Lucius and Jason. Kinsman Sosipater. Tertius, the author. Gaius, the host. Erastus, the city treasurer. And brother Cordus, 
What a list. But more importantly, what a heart. Paul's heart was a familiar one. He valued his fellow Christians and he valued their ministries. So there's a list of 26 names for you. But you know what? As I wrote this sermon, another list formed in my, my mind, a list of 50, 50 people in this church. Last week, I saw something of Paul's heart in many of you. From Monday to Wednesday, 50 people battled traffic to get here at 7 a.m. to look after kids. Uh, people gave up their week to cook, to clean, to prepare crafts, to man sound desks, to MC, to teach, to lead. 50 brothers and sisters doing the family business together, shoulder to shoulder. What should we expect of a Christian heart? It should be a familial one. That's the first point. But the second thing we should expect is that it's a protective one. Paul had the heart of a protective parent for his Christians. And like all good parents do, Paul gave his family words of warning about strangers who seem like family but aren't. But he doesn't just give us warning, he gives us an appeal. It's like when a father says to a child, please, please listen to what I'm saying. This is important. That person can't be trusted. And he gives them two commands. Watch out and keep away. What are they to watch out for? They were to watch out for people posing as family. People who seek to divide the family and put obstacles in their way. Just like today, the, the early church was easily divided. In the city down from Chencray was Corinth. And the Corinthians, as we know, some of them were siding with Paul, some of them were siding with Apollos, and so on and so forth. He wanted the Romans to understand that any genuine member of God's family wouldn't do that. They wouldn't seek to divide the family over non-core business. That is gospel proclamation. These people were threatening family business. They distorted the gospel. Now, we don't know who these people were. Paul seems to want to characterize them instead of identify them. But in all likelihood, they were probably Jews, unconverted Jews who wanted to divide God's family to make them abandon the gospel and return to this do good to be good with God religion. So they sought to divide the family, but they did another thing. They sought to place their obstacles in the way of Christians. And these obstacles were presumably teachings or commands because Paul says that they were contrary to the teaching the Romans had learnt. Look at it in the text. Verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. You see, Paul's protective heart, it motivated him to warn the family about poses. But he had more to say. You see, when a child is told, don't give your phone number over the internet, it's not wise. And they naturally ask, why? The answer that never helps is, because I told you to. Right? They always want to know the answer why. And Paul's one step ahead of the game. Look what he says. He says, uh, sorry, he, he gives his family the why answer. These people can't be trusted. And why? Because they don't serve the head of the family, Jesus. Anyone who's really family wouldn't do something that would divide or endanger the unity and faith of the family. Instead, what do they do? They serve their appetites. 
That's, that is their own pleasure and gratification. Look at it in the text, verse 18. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. That's their heart attitude. But now he gives a picture. He gives us a picture of how they operate. Right? A fake family friend is recognized by their speech. They're smooth talkers. They're deceptive with their words. They make whatever they say seem convincing, often through half-truths. Look at it in the text. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of the naive. And the scary thing about fake family, it's often hard to tell who's who. When I was uh, in Sydney two weeks back, I stayed with two of my close friends who have two boys. And each night for about four nights, hopefully this works, I had to read this to the boys. And uh, the story is so deeply embedded in my mind now that when I read this text, I had to connect it. You see, there's a character called Scar, the one on the left. Now, Scar is the, is the, the uncle of young Simba on the, on the... Sorry, right, on the left, yeah. Where am I going with this? <laughs> all right. So it's all about Simba. He's a future king. The bad uncle Scar. He's not really family. He's fake family, and here's why. He doesn't serve the head of the family. The head of the family in that story is, another, is Simba's dad, Mufasa. But, but the uncle, he has his own agenda. And what does he do? He uses smooth talk and deception to convince his little nephew to go into a graveyard, and his hope is that, in doing so, young Simba will pass away and Scar will be king. Now, now that's what Paul wanted the Romans to learn but he also modeled for us a way of looking out for the rest of the family. Paul was like a parent who watches their kid on the front porch, always keeping one eye on what they're doing, always being responsible. And in some sense, all of God's family needs such a heart, a heart that looks out for each other. So you always hear in, in, in families uh, the saying, no one's allowed to pick on my brother or sister but me. All right? I, I might like to stir them, even get in a fight with them. But if anyone tries to deceive or hurt them, you better watch out. And that's what Paul's doing. He knows this and he wants his family to be ready. Now, we might be tempted to think, this isn't us. We're not like the Romans. We're not some new church full of people who don't know their Bibles. We're not like a young, naive cub named Simba. But like I said, it isn't always easy to spot fake family. It's not always immediately obvious. And this is especially because we're emotional before we're intellectual. That is, when, we, when we're faced with something, we react first with emotion, then comes our, our logic. And that gives smooth talk and deceptive speech a way in and, and, we, and, and, and enables us to be convinced that someone is family when they're not. Now, now in verse 19, Paul gives the, the deeper reason for why, we must, must, sorry, for why he must warn his family in Rome. They're universally known for their obedience. You see, often with obedience comes a greater likelihood of accepting leadership, compliancy, just submit, even if they're a bad leader. As my ministry trainer once said, every strength is a weakness. Now look at it with me. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Paul doesn't want this, this great trait of theirs, this noble trait of being uh, obedient, to be their undoing. 
it has to be balanced out with being street smart, right? being wary of the intentions of others. He wants his family to be as wise as serpents, but innocent as doves, as Jesus says in Matthew 10. But Paul, uh, he doesn't just end with warnings. Like any Christian parent, he gives them hope. Right? His family might be vulnerable. They might be surrounded by spiritual danger, but this won't last forever. Right? The one who's responsible will be taken down, will be knocked out by God and crushed under the feet of the family. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Imagine how encouraging that would be to the church in Rome to know that in the end, the family triumphs. We get a glimpse of this in Kids Club. We saw a glimpse of this, rather, when we watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The people of Narnia were under oppression from the White Witch, but they had hope. And they had hope because they knew of a prophecy that Aslan the king was coming and he was going to take down the queen and restore Narnia. And in a similar vein, that's what gave the Romans the ability to keep on going. They knew what, how the end would, would, would finish. What should we expect from the Christian heart? A familial heart and a protective heart. That's the first two points. But there's one more dimension to this sort of heart. Paul's heart was gospel-focused. Ultimately, Paul's heart towards the family fled out of his love for the head of the family. In the end, everything must come back to the head. You see, Paul began with the gospel in chapter 1, and he ends with the gospel in chapter 16. Paul spent uh, the, the, last, the, sorry, for the last 15 chapters, Paul has spent 11 of them unpacking this idea, and that is, we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but we are more loved by God than we could ever possibly hope. Paul unpacked what it means that we are sinners, what Christ did about it, and that we are in Christ Jesus, no longer condemned. And for the remaining chapters, he taught us how to live in response to that great gospel, that great grace. And now in this final sentence, these final sentences of this letter, he deliberately echoes the language and the themes in this letter. Have a look at him. The God who is able. We see that back in chapter 1, verse 4. The God who strengthens you. We see in chapter 1, verse 11. My gospel. We see in 1, 1. The revelation now manifested. That's chapter 1, verse 17. Prophetical writings. 1, verse 2. It goes on. Paul's going full circle and he's landing where he began. The gospel. The object of the family's business. Paul wants the family in Rome to end in praise because that's just the natural response to the gospel. He leaves his family with a reminder of what the head of the family is powerful enough to do. You see, it's the head of the family who's able to establish them. That's their hope. What Paul desires to do in Rome, what the Romans desire to do, it's, only, it's all possible with God's help. Look at it in the text. Now to him who is able to establish you, he wants them to praise the one who is to establish them. How does God do this? Paul says it's through the gospel that is preached and is in line with God's revelation in accordance with my gospel, he says. You see, it's the gospel that works through the proclamation or the preaching of the word. The preaching is the vehicle. It's the means by which the gospel is made effective. And that message he proclaims is about Jesus and this preached gospel is God's revelation, once hidden, now revealed. 
You see, God gave this to the Romans so that the Gentiles like them might also come to obedience that comes from faith. And this is all ultimately to bring glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. You know, as I was thinking about Paul's heart for the family of God, it got me thinking about my future ministry as an Air Force chaplain. And being interested in military culture, my mind uh, drew a parallel between Paul's heart and the parallels we see in the American Navy SEALs. Let me share a story about two men who went from colleagues to friends to brothers. This is them. Mike Koch and Nate Hardy. Here they are behind me. These guys were seals, just like the ones that you've seen on, th- on TV in Thailand, helping those boys in the cave. The year is 2008. They're in Afghanistan. They're attacking the enemy compound. Mike goes in. He gets shot by an enemy hidden in the wall. Nate gets out with no injuries. Now, he could have just run out, fled, and kept his life, but he doesn't. He goes back in. He doesn't go back in because it was his job. He doesn't go back in because uh, he was protecting his family. He goes in because, sorry, he goes in because he wasn't going to leave his brother behind, dead or alive. And you know, Nate loses his life trying to get his brother's body back. One brother dying for another. Now, I know that we're not Navy SEALs. Sorry, turn that off. We don't have the careers or lives like those guys with that amount of intensity. But the question we should ask is this. How did Mike and Nate form such a close bond, such an inseparable bond? And the answer comes down to one thing. They were completely united in their vision to serve their nation as SEALs. These men uh, formed an inseparable bond. They had complete trust and brotherly love for each other. Now, if these men were so deeply united to serve their country, how much more should we be united to serve our head, the Lord Jesus? Their bond, in part, comes from training and going to battle, but ours should be tighter because we train and we go into battle as well. But we also have that living God inside of us, giving us a supernatural unity. Last week, I saw a glimpse of this at Holiday Club. People were buying coffees for each other. People were uh, making lunch, bringing lunch, offering to, to take on tasks, all because they have a familial heart for each other. So how do we keep developing such a heart? Here's three ways forward. The first and the most important thing we can do is ask God to give us such a heart. Because after all, it's only God who can change us by his spirit. The second is to pray for our elders. Right now, we have a church mission. And that church mission is to make disciples. And that's the mission of every single church. But can you imagine how much more bonded we would be if we were united around a vision, a detailed vision for how we prayerfully hope to actualize this mission in our part of the city. Now, most of us aren't elders, but we can pray for those elders. We can pray for our future pastoral team for wisdom to form such a vision. And the third thing we can do is we can pray for each other. You know, when I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that maybe uh, praying for all of you would help me to grow my love for you. And so what I've committed to doing 
is uh, I pick this off my office uh, desk and I'm going to pray through one page a week. And I'd love to encourage you to do the same. I've got a bunch of them down there, the family directory, so you can grab one afterwards. But, you know, I've got 18 months to try and pray for all of you and then I'm gone. The Air Force will uplift me and place me somewhere else. But for most of you, you have many years ahead of fellowshipping together. And so imagine how much, you, how much deeper you can go with each other if you intentionally pray for one another and you invite each other over. Along with checking how familiar our hearts are, though, we need to consider how protective they are. It's clear that we're just as vulnerable now as the Romans were then. We let our itching hear what they want to hear. We fall trapped to personalities. When I was a teenager, which some of you love to remind me was in the Dark Ages, a guy called Rob Bell was popular. Now, Rob was probably the coolest pastor out. He made church cool, if that's even possible. He started his own church. It grew to 11,000 people. Right? He, he made all these short movies with cool names like Noise and Flame and Rhythm. He got invited to speak at the Oprah Winfrey Show. He became Time Magazine's, uh, one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the whole world. He wrote dozens of books. But in 2011, he wrote a book called Love Wins. And in that book, uh, he essentially, indirectly, affirms that all people will go to heaven, regardless of whatever they believe. And that book led 3,000 people to leave his church and eventually led himself out of the church. And and apparently he left in order to find a more forgiving faith and a church that could keep moving with the rising line of culture. Now, without wanting to demonise this guy, I'm sure he's done much good in the church. The trouble is, either knowingly or unknowingly, Bell's refusal to declare some things as true and some things as false has, has done what Paul just warned us about. Right? He's caused division. 3,000 people left. He put obstacles in the way of the family of faith. We need to watch out for people like Bell. As we mentor, as we, as we lead growth groups, as we lead uh, Kids Church, Yoshi, we need to have an ear open to hear what our, our people are listening to, who they're downloading, who they're watching, who they're reading. And we need to be doing an identity check. Are these people family or are these people foes? And finally, are our hearts gospel focused? What's the reasons for Paul's affection and concern for them? Well, it's all bound up in his gospel focus, which we see in the final verses of his letter. This gospel that he proclaimed was what he proclaimed, but he recognizes it was a work of God. It's God who strengthens, it's God who sustains. In the end, it's God's work, not his. But notice his priority. He begins with the gospel and he ends with the gospel. In the Navy, in the Navy SEALs, they have this, this concept called front sight focused, being front sight focused. In every aspect of their mission, in every work they do, it's all about that, not getting distracted. Now, if, if the SEALs invest that much training and time into doing just that, how much more... And that's to, that's to save lives. How much more ought we to be front sight focused to protect and save souls? So it's good to reflect on our ministries. Again, when we're mentoring, when we're leading groups, when we're leading kids' church in Yoshi, when we go out evangelizing, are we front sight focused 
or a way distracted. Everything has to come back to the gospel. The gospel needs to be the blood of our spiritual veins. And so, friends, we have just come to the end of this amazing book, 16 chapters, the letter called Romans. We've spent many weeks exploring the gospel, the implications, and how we're to live with familial, protective, and gospel-focused hearts. The head of our family will establish us. That's his promise. And as we go out in this fallen world again this week, let's remember his promise to establish us and bring us to the nations to obedience. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the letter of Romans and the great news of the gospel that's proclaimed in it. Lord, would you help us to live in light of that great gospel? Would you help us to have hearts that are familial, that are protective, and that are gospel-focused? Enable us to, to, to achieve this end, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.